Hello, happy Earth Day, everyone. Uh, my name's Rada Krell. I'm a professor here in the biology department at Western Connecticut State University. And right now, I have the extreme pleasure of teaching a course called Public Policy for Biodiversity. And here at WestCon, we have a, a master's degree program in integrative biological diversity. And what's unique about our program is it's all about uh, combining uh, evidence-based science with driving action on biodiversity change. And biodiversity is fundamentally uh, the collection of all of the organisms on the planet that we know exist. And when we think about um, the connections to human life, biodiversity is really fundamental to everything that drives uh, what we see on Earth, uh, all of our interactions with organisms, um, every ecosystem on the planet. And so biodiversity is really closely related to human health, human economies, um, even social, cultural values that we hold. And so as a part of this program, um, it's fundamentally science-based, but we are always making connections to uh, the broader world that involves humans. And so our students are, are really interested in driving change, and I think that's a perfect way for us to celebrate Earth Day by celebrating uh, the passions of some of these students and the evidence behind um, that drives these passions in terms of really trying to conserve biodiversity. So a part of this class, there'd be a lot of ways to teach a class on public policy. Uh, we could just go through legal documents on things that protect biodiversity. Um, and we certainly discuss some of those in the class. But fundamentally, policy is an action-oriented endeavor. And so the students are learning a lot about how to drive action on these things that they're passionate about. And a lot of driving action about biodiversity is related to communication. And so the students have been learning about different ways to communicate uh, about sometimes very complicated scientific topics to a broader audience. And as a part of that, the students had to develop short um, oral communication pieces. And, and these are things that they could potentially uh, say in a public meeting or say in an elevator to a policymaker, you know, the classic elevator pitch. And so they, they had to work to craft a nice uh, two to three minute statement on a biodiversity policy issue of their choice. And so today we get to hear these statements and uh, this, the kind of the passion and the science that the students brought to the, these little stories uh, really uh, came through in a powerful way. And we're thrilled we can share them today on Earth Day with our, with our broader audience. And and of course, many of these topics deal with local Connecticut issues. Um, and so, uh, so we'll be presenting these. And again, the students could choose any issue of their choice. And, uh, and we'll be discussing um, letting their voices shine in terms of, of, of what they want to share about these important local issues. First up, we're going to hear from students that were interested in sharing information about local species and how to protect these local organisms. And so we'll hear from Andrew Powers, John Michael Arnett, and Carly Mengler. Hello, my name is Andrew Powers, and I'm a master's student at WestCon, and I study superheroes, a special type of superhero in that, what if I were to tell you that there's a group of animals that have a diverse suite of superpowers, the power to heal those affected by cancer, high blood pressure, pain, multiple sclerosis, and more, the power to rid your neighborhood of tick-borne diseases such as Lyme disease and are the ideal predator of many pest species. In addition to these superpowers, 
What if I told you that these same animals have long migrations, live for 40 years or more, may be able to tell the day of the week, protect their babies, and have friends they prefer to spend their time with over their long lives? You might ask what these amazing animals are. Well, what if I were to tell you that you already knew these incredible animals, and they are in fact snakes? Snakes are far more complex than most people would know and have tight social bonds and incredibly varied lifestyles. Some snakes live in remote, snowy mountains. Others live high in the treetops, deep underground, and even some that live far from land in the oceans. However, even the snakes that live within your own backyard can be of great benefit to you in many ways you might not think of. Tick-borne diseases such as Lyme disease are on the rise in the United States and are one of the best ways to get rid of ticks are snakes. They can remove up to 4,500 ticks from your neighborhood. You and your family are far more likely to encounter one of these disease-carrying ticks than any snake. Unlike ticks that are happy to encounter humans, there's nothing that would make a snake happier than never running into a human. But for all of these benefits that snake provides at ecosystems, there's some bad news. Snakes are in worldwide decline. The reason for this decline are numerous, but mostly relate to the human expansion in the natural world. Many groups of animals and habitats are generally acknowledged to be rapidly disappearing, such as rainforests and frogs, but snakes are often thought of in this way. Snakes are more vulnerable to declines than some animals because most species have a relatively long lifespan, with some living over 50 years. It is estimated that 28% of snake species are under threat. They are an underappreciated group, and my goal is to raise the public's awareness of the plight of snakes and their many benefits. Many people think that the world would be better off without snakes, but this couldn't be any further from the truth. Snakes are a vital part of the Earth's ecosystem and a valuable predator that keeps nature's balance in check. Therefore, it is imperative to save our snake populations. The best way to help snakes is simple. Just give them their space. As I said before, snakes are very shy organisms that do best when left alone. Another way of helping snake populations is to give them space to cross roads when they migrate and taking care to mow when, and take care when you mow your lawn to avoid basking snakes and leave unmowed sections where snakes can find more ample food and be able to avoid predators better. By maintaining our snake populations, we can commit to having the healthier ecosystem and be healthier ourselves. Hello, my name is John Michael Arnett. I'm a graduate student at Western Connecticut State University, and today I'm going to introduce you to Connecticut's most unique species of turtle, the Dimeback terrapin. The Dimeback terrapin is the only species of turtle in North America that primarily occupies brackish habitat, which are waterways that occur between saltwater and freshwater. These turtles are considered keystone species because they are important in maintaining the coastal ecosystems by preventing snail populations from overfeeding on native plant species. However, Dimeback terrapins have been declining range-wide over the last 20 years. Roads, a byproduct of urbanization and development, have been referred to as the sleeping giant, and recently biologists report the negative effects roads have on the environment. Studies have concluded that roads located on or near wetlands, ponds, and open water areas tend to have a high percent of Dimeback terrapin road mortality. Therefore, roads are considered ecological traps for terrapins, suggesting that the long-term effects of this artificial source of mortality can compromise their populations. We need to know more about the abundance, age, and sex of terrapins in Connecticut. 
This summer, I will be studying terrapins across multiple sites along the coastal regions of Connecticut and compare the data to evaluate any significant differences between the populations. Through collaboration with the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, this study will be the first of its kind in Connecticut, focusing on the effects of row mortality on terrapins. You may be asking what you can do to save these one-of-a-kind species of turtle, and I have the answer for you. The Maritime Aquarium in Norwalk, Connecticut is providing opportunities for volunteers to survey roadways that may potentially reveal hotspots for terrapin row mortality, allowing mitigation efforts to be prioritized at these hotspots. With my research and the support of volunteers, we may just be able to allow these diamonds of the marsh to return to their original status as protectors of the Connecticut coastlines and create a safer world for all species of wildlife to live in. Hello everyone, my name is Carly Mingler and I will be talking about the conservation of bog turtles. I have gained interest on this topic due to my biodiversity class I am currently taking. With climate change slowly growing in the world, I think bringing these environmental issues to the public is important for awareness, especially for us younger generations who will most likely be addressing these issues the most. Did you know that Connecticut has the smallest turtle in North America? The bog turtle has an average length of 4.5 inches, so it could fit right in your hand. It has been listed under the Endangered Species Act since 1997, so a total of 25 years under this list. It's time to take action and take this turtle off the list. Typically, these turtles live in wetland areas, but there have been many issues affecting these habitats. According to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, more than 110 million acres of wetlands have been destroyed since the 1700s. The majority of this destruction has occurred due to human activity. As of right now, there are about 2,500 to 10,000 bog turtles left in the U.S. with only five known locations in Connecticut. Climate change and human activity are the major components of why the species has declined so dramatically. As we all know, climate change has caused a lot of damage to our environment in a lot of ways that the public are not aware of. Wetland ecosystems have been impacted by climate change, resulting in loss of plant diversity, unstable water flows, reduced water availability, decrease of bird and amphibian species, and more. As habitat availability continues to decrease due to new construction, these bog turtles have very limited space to live. Over the past few decades, we have slowly taken more and more habitats away from these turtles. We also use these turtles in the illegal pet trade. These turtles can sell from $200 to $2,000, but don't get any ideas. So you may be asking yourself, why should we care? Well, first, these turtles are super cute, but conserving wetland areas will result in cleaner water and decreased flooding within the area. These wetlands actually filter pollutants and absorb rainwater. It will also open up more recreational use in Western Connecticut for local residents to enjoy beautiful sightseeing and nature walks. These protected habitats will not only help conserve bog turtles, but will also help other endangered species in the area to increase populations. Here are some ways that you could help conserve the species. You can reach out to local organizations such as Great Hollow Nature Preserve and Squans Pond to have signs posted about bog turtle endangerment to not disrupt wetland areas nor remove the turtles from their habitats. You can also discuss this issue with your friends and family to bring public awareness to Fairfield County. I know this normally isn't a major conversation starter, but if you show them a picture of a bog turtle, I'm sure you will grab their attention right away. Another issue that many of our students have been looking into is the issue of invasive species. And invasive species are organisms that uh, come into an area that are not normally found in that area. 
And specifically, we had two students look at uh, issues related to invasive plants, both in water systems and on land. So we'll hear from David McCaskill talking about uh, invasive water plants, and we'll hear from Joanne Dadio talking about invasive land plants and replacing them with native plants. A lot of people live in lake communities and enjoy having access to the lake, with over 25,000 people living on our local Candwood Lake alone. There are so many benefits of lake life, be it the view, access to boating, swimming, etc. But lakes aren't just a resource for human entertainment and leisure. They are full ecosystems supporting plant life, fish, by extension birds, and many other species. Because lakes are vibrant ecosystems, it is important to keep local waters healthy and the communities thriving. One major aspect of keeping your local waters healthy is to manage plants, both in and out of the water, responsibly. Outside of the water, you want to have what is called a buffer garden, growing between what makes up most of your yard and the water. This prevents runoff of nutrients, sediment, and anything that really shouldn't end up in the lake. On top of that, try to use as few pesticides and chemical treatments as possible on the rest of your yard and plants. These get into the water and drive the nutrients up dramatically. Now, most people hear the word nutrients and think they are a positive thing because of our associations with diet and nutrition, but that isn't the case when it comes to lakes. These nutrients, mainly nitrogen and phosphorus, can mess with the water chemistry and lead to negative effects such as harmful algal blooms. These are, first, incredibly unsightly, green, slimy masses on the surface of the water that make it look like somebody dumped green paint. And second, they can be very unhealthy, even fatal to dogs and small children. Nobody should have to worry if the water in the lake in their backyard can be dangerous to their kid. They just want them to be able to enjoy swimming. As far as plants in the water, it is good to have a healthy community of native plants, but invasive species like Eurasian milfoil should be removed whenever possible. Some people would rather just have the lake be a gigantic pool, but that isn't realistic or healthy and works against you in the long term. Sure, it makes sense to remove all plants from designated swimming areas by public beaches, for example. But if you did theoretically get rid of all the plants in a lake, there's no more food or shelter for fish, which kills them, and the birds have no food, so they leave, and the lake gets overfilled on nutrients and algae and will become just a scummy mess that nobody wants to swim in or even live on, which destroys your ability to resell your property on the lake. So you need to be aware of what can be done managing plants and accept that some are good. Most native species aren't unsightly or gross anyway, and if all you ever think of when considering aquatic plants is invasives, it's easy to get into a mindset that can really end up backfiring. Ultimately, you need to strive to preserve the ecology of the lake, allow plenty of species to coexist, and you'll be able to continue enjoying the lake with all the perks that come with it, and your property value will stay where you want it. Since the dawn of civilization, humans have modified the land around them to suit their needs. After 5,000 years of perfecting this practice, ecosystems all over the world have become highly fragmented due to the establishment of farms, homes, businesses, and industry. And, unfortunately, native species in many ecosystems are finding it more and more difficult to access adequate nutrition. Their food sources and living spaces are simply vanishing through physical removal, competition with non-native species, and a rapidly changing climate. Sadly, many species are experiencing local extinction events, 
and will soon become extinct altogether if corrective action is not taken. But there is hope. There are things that humans can do to help mitigate the negative consequences of habitat fragmentation. One thing that the average person can do is rethink local landscaping practices. Many private citizens, business owners, and managers of public and private spaces often select ornamental plants for their beauty. Unfortunately, many ornamental plants sold in nurseries accidentally become invasive, and they often also introduce damaging invasive animal pests. Therefore, it is time for citizens of our community to consider embracing the beauty of native plants. Many native plants, such as wild bergamot and milkweed, produce beautiful flowers and are very well adapted to our soil as their roots tend to run deep. They are perennial, so they grow back year to year, saving the landowner time and money on landscaping. Native plant gardens also tend to be low maintenance as the plants are already adapted to our soil and do not require daily watering. Most of all, the presence of additional native plants will provide an abundance of nutrition to pollinators such as birds, butterflies, bees, and several other insects. This is important because our local pollinators provide immeasurable free natural services that ensure ecological health. As we approach spring, let's all take a moment to reimagine our yards as spaces that can help bring about a healthier ecosystem. One of the biggest factors affecting biodiversity is pollution. And pollution basically means the introduction of any substance into the environment that causes harm. And there are many forms of pollution. And uh, so we'll have some students uh, talk about their, their interests in several different types of pollution, uh, light pollution, water pollution, uh, and, uh, and uh, environmental pollution that affects the air and causes climate change. And so we'll hear from Sebastian Palacio, Tom Hilling, uh, Maria Rodriguez, and Susanna Almeida. Fireflies have been mystical insects throughout human history of over 2,000 species worldwide. Many people have fond memories experiencing their magic on a hot summer night as they light up the night with their yellow behinds. Fireflies spend most of their lives as juvenile larvae in the Northeast. They can spend two to three years on the ground in most soils, hunting vertebrates such as earthworms, snails, slugs, and other critters found in areas of moisture. With a healthy population near your garden, they can even reduce pests from eating your vegetables. However, firefly populations are in decline due to habitat loss, pesticide use, and light pollution. So, what can we do? We can set aside some leaves in our property for fireflies so they can survive the winter. The leaves will provide shelter in harsh winter months in a place where fireflies can lay their eggs during the summer. So when the baby fireflies called larvae emerge, they have a place to find prey. We can also lower the amount of pesticide treatments on our property. Pesticides negatively impact firefly larvae in the soil, so reducing pesticides use will help the larvae reach adulthood. When fireflies emerge into adulthood, they face the challenge of light pollution. Excess light at night makes it very difficult for females to find males, sometimes taking up to 15 days or longer to find a mate, if they find one. Imagine only having one swipe on Tinder per day. This could delay how long or how many people find you attractive. This is what light pollution is doing to fireflies. 
we can lower light pollution by positioning light pictures downward, shielding light pictures so the light doesn't go toward the sky, using motion detectors, switching to red bulbs on our outdoor light pictures, and using warmer color light bulbs. For example, have you ever been driving at night and someone passes you with their ultra-high mega lights in their car and you're blinded for a couple seconds, literally letting Jesus take the wheel? Well, those are the type of lights that are harmful to humans and fireflies. Therefore, we should try to reduce the type of lights in our outdoor lighting. With these low investment solutions, we can make a difference in restoring our firefly populations and let future generations experience a wonderful sight of a warm summer night with a dancing living stars at an arm's reach. The Xerxes Society is a great place to learn more about firefly conservation, and the International Darkest Sky Association is a great resource to find additional information on how to reduce light pollution at darksky.org. Did you know there is a plastic island two times the size of Texas in the Pacific Ocean? My name is Tom Hilling, a graduate student in the biology department here at WCSU, and I'm conducting research in order to better understand the harmful effects plastics pose to humans and wildlife. So let's talk plastic. Everyone uses it and we can't escape it, so why is that an issue? Could it really have an impact on ecosystem and human health? Single-use plastics are convenient and as of now, relatively cheap. But because they are used for such a short period of time and then tossed, they accumulate quickly. Most plastics are not easily recyclable and will ultimately end up in large landfills or the environment. Because there's so much single-use plastic manufacturing globally, there has been exponential interest in researching the effects plastics have on animal and human health. After decades of peer-reviewed research, there is now strong emerging evidence that plastics pose serious health risks to multiple animal species, including humans. Over 200 species are known to have consumed plastics found in their habitats leading to impaction, perforation, or accumulation in the GI tract. Imagine a clogged shower drain. This is the same effect, but it's, a plastic, but it's plastic in a sea turtle's GI. Often, plastic items appear to be prey species as, the, as they move in aquatic environments. A sea turtle can mistake a, bla a plastic bag floating in the ocean for a squid or jellyfish. Secondary plastic consumption is an additional concern that affects both wildlife and human health. This occurs when small plastic particles are ingested by prey species, like fish or herring, which are then eaten by large predators, like tuna. With increased plastic pollution in aquatic environments, the seafood supply chain could suffer. This means your favorite sushi dish could contain plastic. It is also not the ingestion, not just the ingestion of large plastic items that is a concern. There are more studies regarding the effects of chemicals in plastics and microplastics that can be absorbed by the GI tract and stored in fat or muscle tissue. Just this year, scientists have found microplastics in the human bloodstream and lung tissue. And many of these toxic products are known to have a wide range of harmful effects on the development and immune systems of humans. Plastic is pervasive, so how do we make positive change? To avoid further harm to the world's ecosystem and our own health, we need to attack plastics from both the source, manufacturing, and the end-use, human behavior. Federal and local governments have the ability to make incremental societal changes. Government can start by applying a nationwide tax on manufacturers of newly created plastic, and as only 20 corporations produce 55% of the world's plastic waste, these firms will feel the strain. This will be an incentive to produce more eco-friendly, sustainable products in order to avoid significant financial loss. And as corporations change these manufacturing behaviors, public consumption behavior will inevitably change. 
Simply making single-use plastic less available is the start to driving human behavior change, but we can also educate people to stop single-use plastics to drive down the demand. Many are willing to make small consumption changes. However, there are a few options. Reducing single-use plastic consumption will benefit biodiversity and human health while creating a safe and clean environment for future generations. With this in mind, every individual can make an effort to reduce their single-use intake. You can try purchasing glass and aluminum containers in the grocery store that can be easily recycled. You can support local businesses that participate in eco-friendly practices, and you can avoid single-use cutlery when buying takeout. If enough people make these minor day-to-day changes, we can create a healthier planet for all. Hello, uh, my name is Maria Rodriguez, and my topic is water quality and pollution in Connecticut lakes and rivers. So water quality has been declining for decades in Connecticut lakes. Lake Warmog has experienced many cyanobacteria blooms since the 1970s. There has been many reports on humans and dogs that have gotten very sick after swimming in the lake, which has driven a push to create a task force to better the health of the lake. I started working at this task force this past summer. So every time there's a powerful storm or a drizzle, a stream of pollution enters every lake and river in the state. That is, that, that is a really powerful image in your head if you can count like how many lakes and rivers the state of Connecticut even has in general. It's like thousands of them. So this is the, that's a really like wild idea. So many nutrients such as, such as phosphorus and nitrogen enter these freshwater ecosystems, causing cyanobacteria blooms. Cyanobacteria are harmful bacteria that produce toxins that have killed dogs and have caused humans to get sick. These blooms have been a major problem worldwide because the toxins they, they produce cause humans and animals to get very sick. So poor water quality directly impacts hundreds of organisms that drink and use water from these lakes. Many, speci- many species are being harmed and they actually they eventually die out because of the exposure to this p- water, polluted water. Native aquatic plants cannot thrive in these lakes, which will then al- have less food for other animals to eat. Animals won't be able to drink the water and there won't be any food for them to eat, which will cause even more species to die. Therefore, we need to prevent cyanobacteria blooms to maintain healthy lake ecosystems. Rain gardens are a very easy way to help prevent cyanobacteria blooms. A rain garden is a depressed area in the landscape that collects rainwater from a roof, hill, driveway, or street, and it allows for the water to soak into the ground, which will then filter through um, the plants and the dirt. These gardens are efficient in catching rainfall to prevent pollution from entering lakes, providing a natural solution to a very big problem. Rain gardens can be planted in public places, and homers can plant them in their own properties. While rain gardens are something we can all do, we also need better regulation and enforcement to prevent industry from dumping into our waterways. Making very strict laws that prohibit them from dumping any sort of pollution will significantly reduce nutrient loading. Lakes are a vital, vital part of life in Connecticut for families to enjoy and as ecosystems for thousands of organisms. 
Freshwater ecosystems are essential for survival of all life in general. Humans, plants, and animals need fresh water to survive, so protecting lakes from pollution will ensure clean water for the future. Uh, climate change is a serious concern for plant and animal species across the globe. Uh, global warming is when the temperature of the Earth increases due to the greenhouse effect. Earth's average temperature is gradually increasing and is expected to go up 2.5 to 10 degrees Fahrenheit within the next century. Because of this, glaciers have been melting, animal rangers, ranges are shifting, and plants are blooming sooner. Natural resources like oil, coal, and natural gas are non-renewable, meaning once they are completely gone, more cannot be made. By burning fossil fuels, humans are contributing to the amount of pollution in the Earth's atmosphere. According to a study done in 2015, scientists predicted that the Earth would run out of oil in 51 years, natural gas in 53, and coal in 114 years. Today, 85% of the world relies solely on non-renewable resources like crude oil and coal. Instead, we can use more sustainable resources to generate energy like solar, wind, and hydropower. By using renewable energy sources, the amount of greenhouse gases can be decreased by almost 90%. Solar panels are extremely reliable because they can capture and store power during the cloudy or rainy days. Connecticut sees an average of 194 sunny days a year making it the prime candidate for solar energy. Homeowners who power their houses with solar panels see a property value increase of roughly $15,000. Since excess solar energy can be stored, households can save an average of $1,100 per month on electricity bills. By expressing interests in where our energy comes from, we can persuade big companies and universities to use more renewable energy resources. Until then, college students can help the planet by lowering their carbon footprint. This is done by taking shorter showers, throwing away less food, and carpooling more often. We might not be able to completely undo the damage already done, but we can take steps to conserve the earth for future generations. Another type of pollution a lot of people don't consider is noise pollution, uh, which has an impact both on human health and many different organisms. So next we'll hear from Michael D'Souza on that issue. Biodiversity refers to the variety of living organisms in a particular ecosystem. Conservation of the abundance of life, plants and animals alike, is critical to maintaining balanced ecosystems around the world. All organisms play a role in the interconnected web of life, and their presence or absence impacts all others in a type of chain reaction. For example, we could take a look at the removal of wolf populations in Yellowstone during the late 1800s and early 1900s, and the corresponding effects on the rest of the community. Importantly, maintaining healthy ecosystems benefits humans as well. These benefits could include good water quality, purification of air, maintenance of soil, regulation of the climate, and, regulation, and recycling of nutrients. The raw materials provided can give us food as well as resources for medicines as well. However, anthropogenic noise pollution, or human noise, is becoming increasingly abundant as the populations of humans rises. We're seeing increases in urban developments which involve construction noise and traffic noise, among many other sources. If you live in an urban setting, you probably know what I'm talking about. And if you live in the suburbs, well, you probably experience the noise from traffic on the main roads. Auditory signals play a significant role in the behaviors of many organisms. Noise reduces the ability to perceive the acoustic signals, which can create a variety of behavioral alterations in animals. These alterations include orientation, movement communication, foraging, hunting efficiency, 
altered energy budgets, predation, and even stress hormone dysregulation. This can cause some species to leave the area altogether to find a more suitable or quieter habitat. So actions are needed to reduce the amount of anthropogenic noise. On the individual level, actions such as carpooling to reduce the number of cars on the road, not using the car horn unless absolutely necessary, insulating homes with sound buffering materials, and simply raising and building awareness about the issue really helps. On a larger scale, actions can be taken in the form of policy. These could include moving public transportation toward electric vehicles, creation of policy that limits decibel output of constructions or landscaping sites, or limiting the time of day when these activities can take place. Even planting trees can help to buffer these sounds. Taking part in these small activities can play a large role in preserving biodiversity. Thank you. It's possible to address biodiversity issues from many different angles. And so the next student that we'll hear from uh, is going to discuss how important uh, the area of sports is in terms of the potential to contribute to climate change, but also as an area uh, where we can make a lot of progress in decreasing the in impact on climate change uh, in the area of sports and the greening of sports. So we'll hear from J.P. Delaguerre on this issue. Commercialised sport accounts for 0.8% of the world's total carbon emissions. Although this may seem like a low percentage, it is actually the equivalent to the carbon footprint of Spain, Poland and Thailand combined. Just to make sure that we're on the same page, carbon emission is the release of greenhouse gases such as carbon dioxide, methane and nitrous oxide into the Earth's atmosphere. Carbon emissions have already taken their toll on sport, with unprecedented heat at the 2020 Tokyo Olympics and rising sea levels on track to put one out of four English soccer clubs underwater by 2050. This includes clubs like Chelsea Football Club, West Ham United and Norwich City, with their total combined value around $4.6 billion. Not all hope is lost, however. The English soccer club Forest Green Rovers has shown how both at the fan and club level that carbon emissions can be tackled in commercialised sport. It has been named the greenest football club in the world and one of only 15 organisations to win a United Nations Momentum for Change Climate Action Award. So, how did they do it? Well, one, they reduced their consumption of energy, two, altered players' and fans' diets, and three, reduced their demand for heat, light and water consumption. In 2013, Forest Green Rovers prevented 18.3 tonnes of carbon. That is the equivalent to the carbon absorbed by 300 trees or four football pitches of trees. This saved the club around $4,000. However, the baseball team, Seattle Mariners, has also made efforts in reducing their carbon footprint. Since 2008, the Mariners saved $2.1 million in energy savings, $330,000 in water savings, and $570,000 in waste diversion. Clubs in different sports and in different parts of the world have shown that carbon emissions in commercialised sport can be reduced, and better yet, save money. Reducing carbon emissions related to sport might not seem like an obvious way to decrease carbon emissions, but every reduction makes a difference and because of the high public engagement in sport, there is a real potential to educate people on other changes that can be made whilst having fun. One of the biggest issues that has a major impact on biodiversity loss is agriculture. And so our next student, Sophia Kiaya, will be talking about the potential of sustainable agriculture to offset the losses caused by conventional agriculture. Food insecurity plagues American families across the states. More than 38 million people, including 12 million children in the United States, are food insecure. However, food insecurity doesn't stem from a lack of food production. One third of the food produced for human consumption is lost or wasted globally. This is about 1.3 billion tons every year. As the demand for food rises, many agricultural systems are depleting soil fertility, 
biodiversity, and water resources. And yet the United States agriculture is interwoven with its American citizens, food supply, and native ecosystems. Sustainable agriculture unifies these forces by strengthening American economy, vitalizing rural communities, and increasing employment rates for American workers. It heightens quality and safety of food while improving rural, social, and economic conditions for citizens. A leap towards sustainable agricultural practices in the U.S. will help support American communities, economy, and environment. As a consumer, it's not your fault, but there are ways to be sustainable when buying groceries, starting in your home. See what you already have before building your grocery list. That way you could avoid food waste by not buying too much at the store. You could shop at neighborhood farmers markets, which are eco-friendly and provide locally grown and organic produce that is normally package free. Support local produce, uh, supporting local produce creates less strain in the environment by reducing carbon emissions required for transport. Lastly, know what's seasonally available in your area and prepare a shopping list around it. It's time we made a change and start protecting the earth, not owning it. Within the context of agriculture, one of the types of agriculture that has the biggest impact is the production of livestock. And in terms of the amount of land that it takes and the amount of uh, land that it takes to produce the food for those animals, uh, it has a really big impact on the amount of habitat that can be lost. And so next we'll hear from Savannah Davido about meat consumption. Greetings everyone. My name is Savannah Davidow and I'm a senior at Western Connecticut State University. Our planet is in the midst of the next great extinction. This means if we don't make necessary changes, we are on a path for 90% of all land animals to lose habitat by 2050. The warming climate is causing unprecedented changes on Earth, such as rising sea levels and receding shorelines, more severe storm seasons, devastating loss of plant and animal species, increased drought in many places, and last but not least, record high temperatures. The animal species that have been harmed because of climate change include polar bears, sea turtles, snow leopards, penguins, caribou, monarch butterflies, just to name a few. Plant life is also changing with the changing climate as more and more plant species become endangered or go extinct yearly. So what is causing this heartbreaking event? The unfortunate and hard to swallow answer is us. Humans are huge drivers of global warming through our overpopulation and overuse of non-renewable resources such as fossil fuels, which include coal, petroleum, and oil. As more and more people populate the Earth, the demand for food and resources increases as well. But our planet is unable to support our current population and practices. But don't worry, there is still a lot that can be done to slow the progress of climate change. One of the best things we as humans can do to help the planet is unfortunately not the most popular option. Stop producing and consuming meat. A large percentage of all greenhouse gas emissions come from the meat industry, and the biggest contributor is beef. The major greenhouse gases include carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, and chlorofluorocarbons. As they accumulate in Earth's atmosphere, they trap heat, causing global warming. It has been found that 57% of all greenhouse gas emissions worldwide come from the production of meat and animal products. The reason that beef in particular is so harmful is because cows produce a lot of gas. What I mean by this is that they burp and fart out immense amounts of methane. A study actually found that a single cow burps 220 pounds of methane per year. The solution could be as simple as just decreasing your individual meat consumption or having one meatless day a week. If everyone in America alone participated, it could immensely decrease the harsh impacts of the meat industry. 
It's easy to feel like the changes that are needed to combat climate change are too big to address, but reducing meat consumption is something that everyone can do that combines to make a big difference. A major area of biodiversity concern in Connecticut are issues related to Long Island Sound, and specifically some of the pollution that affects that area in Connecticut. And so next we'll hear from uh, Marissa Olivara and Kayla de Guzman about some of our water pollution issues impacting Long Island Sound. Imagine it's a hot summer day and the family is packed and ready to go to one of our beautiful beaches along the Long Island Sound. Everyone has on their sunscreen and goggles ready to jump in the water, but wait, there's a sign that says the beach is closed due to toxic water conditions. Beach closures and shellfish harvesting bed closures are just a couple of the consequences of nutrient pollution in the sound. Currently, nutrient pollution coming from urban and agricultural areas, old stormwater drainage systems, and water treatment plants are causing the proliferation of toxic algae, creating harmful algal blooms, or HABs, you can spot a hab because they often appear as reddish or brownish patches in the ocean, hence the terms red tide or brown tide. For humans, harmful algal blooms cause many issues. Contact with a harmful bloom can cause respiratory and or skin irritation. Even worse, if one consumes shellfish grown in waters where there are toxins present, they can be poisoned. Symptoms of shellfish poisoning include nausea, vomiting, and incapacitating diarrhea. These blooms can also impact local economies. Shellfish bed closures prevent local shellfish companies from harvesting in those areas until the bloom clears, impacting their revenue. Also, reoccurring harmful algal blooms have resulted in decreased property values. Florida, for example, experiences major algal bloom events annually, which has resulted in a 10% decrease in property values within five miles of the southwest coast. Environmentally, the breakdown of the algae in these blooms results in massive fish kills because they, the processes involved require much oxygen, resulting in hypoxia, meaning low oxygen waters, killing all the fish in those areas and impacting the fishing industry. The chain of negative consequences from nutrient pollution is long, but all of us together can stop it. Fortunately, there are many things you can do at home to help. If you live along any waterway, plant native shrubs, trees, or plants, on the water edge of your property to reduce the amount of nutrients directly entering streams. If you use any fertilizers, avoid applying them before a rain event or strong winds so that they aren't immediately washed or blown away. Also, only apply the correct amount of fertilizer in the specific location on your property to avoid the excess from washing away. You can also take action with your voice and money. Contact your local officials to inform them of the importance of improving water treatment plants and stormwater drainage systems. You can also purchase your fish and shellfish from local industries committed to sustainability and biodiversity, like Cops Island Oysters located in Norwalk. Collectively, we can restore and protect Long Island Sound so that we and future generations can enjoy it for years to come. My name is Kayla de Guzman, and I'm here to talk to you about nitrogen pollution in Long Island Sound. If you're a coastal Connecticut resident, then you know how much we love Long Island Sound. What if I told you we could make it better for us and the aquatic animals that live in it? Long Island Sound experiences hypoxia, which is when not enough dissolved oxygen is in the water. This is a problematic condition because even our fish need to breathe, right? And this is important because this can lead to fish die-offs and the loss of coastal habitats, which changes the ecosystem species composition and biodiversity. Nitrogen discharge from wastewater treatment plants is a primary contributor to this problem. 
This nutrient pollution can affect the urban estuary of Long Island Sound in several ways, such as impacting commercial fishing and property values. The federal government, New York, and Connecticut attempted to address this problem with the Comprehensive Conservation and Management Plan in 1994, which reduced nitrogen discharge by almost 60% over 15 years. But a study in 2014 determined hypoxia was still a problem in Long Island Sound and dissolved nit oxygen levels on the bottom of the ocean did not improve after the efforts of the Comprehensive Conservation and Management Plan. Therefore, we, the state of Connecticut, need to invest in efforts that increase dissolved oxygen concentrations and or remove nitrogen from the water. Mixing and aeration technology will introduce oxygen-rich water to oxygen-poor water. This is sometimes done in lakes, rivers, and marine harbors. Another valuable investment is the expansion of oyster aquaculture. Shellfish filter out organic particulate matter like nitrogen and phytoplankton whose growth is fueled by nitrogen. Some parts of Connecticut are already doing this and its expansion can result in ecosystem service values of $470 million per year. Oyster aquaculture seems like a win-win because it's providing this ecological service and this yummy product, which many of our Connecticut residents love so much. If we push for our policymakers to invest in efforts such as these, then we could have better water quality, healthy aquatic animals, and thriving ecosystems in Long Island Sound. One of the most important ways to have an impact on issues of conservation is through education. And so next we'll hear from Andre Salino about specifically the impact of hands-on education in doing more to uh, better educate students about science and technology in schools. Several years ago, I volunteered to work with Dr. Edwin Wong here at Western Connecticut State University, assessing harmful algal blooms in local bodies of water to inform public safety efforts. Through this experience, I gained a better understanding of how to ask the right questions and how to critically solve problems through proper lab and field methods. This hands-on learning experience enhanced my growth and provided insight towards my style of learning. During this time, I was able to develop my own research as I gained firsthand experience applying the scientific method to real questions. This hands-on meaningful scientific experience transformed my academic endeavors and turned what was once a 1.9 GPA into a 3.2 GPA. Experiential learning can help students to better understand biological concepts and recognize the importance of the science and its role in the world. We need more people to help us solve environmental problems, and so we need to engage students at an early stage. As a student who personally struggled throughout high school and the first half of my undergraduate career, I came to the realization that there are many ways in which we learn. In a world made up of nearly 8 billion people, I find it hard to believe that one type of education system is the proper way to separate higher level thinkers from lower level thinkers. So what's your style of learning? How do you learn best? Many people, including myself, are hands-on learners and we struggle to retain information in a traditional lecture setting. As a teaching assistant fellow for a general biology lab teaching non-biology major students about the core concepts of biology, I notice that many students don't want to think to critically solve problems, and they seem to lack academic curiosity. It appears that their motivation to learn has been extinguished, and there's even a negative connotation to expanding their intellectual horizons because they do not see any inherent value. I don't blame the students, but rather flaws in the education system that discourages unconventional learning. 
Lifelong learning is one of many spiritual goals that intellectual individuals value. The value of lifelong learning is essential to deploy individuality, critically solve problems, navigate through life's troubles, and inspire others to expand their own knowledge. Whether it be science, music, history, interpersonal insights, or even manual labor, it is vital to guide students down a path in which knowledge is power and how the expansion of learning and critical thinking can help fulfill empty voids in the lives of others and even solve societal problems. It is important that we consider restructuring the education system to be more inclusive and serve the needs of all learners. Therefore, grade schools, institutions, colleges, and universities need to integrate a STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics curriculum that, ev- that accommodates students who are better suited to be challenged and engaged through active learning. Integrated learning opportunities can help guide students and learners in a direction for a career that best suits their interests, their talents, and can evoke their underlying potential. We need a more expansive integration of learning methods into educational systems. STEM education at its best is, is active. It is a field that can make a difference in the lives of struggling students as it did for mine. Hands-on education and a STEM-based curriculum needs more attention as its sphere of influence could change the way students perceive school, learning, and develop citizens that can make a difference in our world. Last today, uh, we'll wrap things up hearing from David Herberger about something we can all get involved with in terms of citizen or community-based science and ways that we can all help to contribute to research that will help in better understanding of issues related to biodiversity. Hi, this is David, and I'm here to talk about science as a team sport. I love the feeling of team sports. I've been a lifelong Giants and Knicks fan. In my youth, I played soccer, basketball, volleyball. Some of my favorite memories were of the camaraderie of being part of a team. Now, being a little older, my outdoor activities avoid the impacts on my body. I do hiking, kayaking, walking on the beach, and gardening. But these are still team sports, although they don't sound like team sports. Many outdoor enthusiasts and amateur conservationists are taking part in crowdsourced teams, large databases of environmental information that can be used in scientific research. Let's talk about a few of these crowds that are already in progress. How about Team Spot a Shark? Did you know that sand tiger sharks have declined over 75% since the 1980s? Most of the loss has been due to unregulated fishing of this endangered shark. But protecting this species and their habitats needs data. Enter the deep diving answers. There are over 2.5 million scuba divers in the U.S. alone. Recreational scuba divers have been documenting shipwrecks, artificial reef sites for decades, and they love to take photos of large sand tiger sharks. Spot a shark has gathered over 5,000 images documented around these sites to help scientists ID specific tiger sharks. We love our photos. Now we can share them with scientists to help them understand their migratory patterns and could be useful for setting fishing policies. How about Team Christmas Bird Count? There's a lot of bird enthusiasts out there, and this is one of our oldest teams, over 120 years of bird watchers regionally getting together to identify and count birds. The original bird count had 25 surveys. It took place in locations from Ontario to California. The 27 birders counted around 89 species, about 18,000 birds all in told. 
Last year, counts took place in 100 locations with over 72,000 birders recorded over 2,400 species for a whopping total of over 66 million birds. Five of those bird counts were right here with locations in Connecticut. This crowdsourcing of more than a century's worth of information has revealed the decline of some species and the recovery of others, providing a deeper understanding of conservation measures that can help these birds. But there's still more to do. We have declining numbers of species due to habitat loss, overfishing, pet trade collection, invasive species, and fragmentation of habitats. Information is crucial to driving policies to help support these species and their habitats. Therefore, what team will you join? Maybe it depends on your activity level. How about beach walker? You can join Team Terrapin. Walk assigned areas during the breeding season around the shores of Connecticut and look for signs of terrapins. All you need to do is snap a few pictures and you're contributing to an endangered species. How about gardening? Try downloading iNaturalist. This app allows you to upload your photos to a crowdsourced citizen science database that helps inventory the diversity around us. Whatever your outdoor enjoyment might be, think about joining one of the hundreds of free citizen, sciences, citizen science teams. So come out, join a team, and cheer for science. The students that we heard from today, I hope you gathered uh, both a hint at the passion they have for their topics, but also that they're all scientists and they're uh, researching these topics in a way to bring evidence to their passion. And that's really an important part of our program here at WestCon, that uh, we're making sure that the background of everything that's done is embedded in science, uh, but also is action-oriented, so that hopefully in the long term we're actually making a difference on issues related to biodiversity. The work of these students is more important than ever at a time when we know that since 1970, we've lost about 68% of population decline uh, across many species on the planet. Uh, if we estimate that we potentially have about 8 million species on the planet, most of these are not yet described, uh, we think that we're losing about a million of those right now. And so it's often discussed as we're in a period of the sixth uh, great mass extinction happening on our planet. And so, again, the voices of these students and their research and their passion is more important than ever in terms of trying to reverse these losses. And it really is possible to reverse these losses. And as uh, many people have said, many activists and scientists have said, protecting biodiversity is essentially also about protecting humanity. And uh, working with these students here uh, really gives me hope, especially on this day, this inflection point in the year when we pause and put some time on thinking about the earth. Uh, again, there's a lot of hope given the, uh, the energy that these students have towards these issues. And again, our program here at WestCon is, is unique uh, because we, uh, we won our program that can cater to working professionals. Many of our students here uh, have full-time jobs as teachers or environmental professionals and have come back to get additional education. And uh, we are always taking rolling admissions. We are always looking for students who are interested to join the program, um, including right now. So if you have been inspired and, and want to do the sort of things these students are doing, uh, feel free to check out our website at, the, at Western Connecticut State University within the Department of Biology and, uh, and learn more about the program. Thanks so much, and happy Earth Day.
At WCSU is a production of WCSU Media, engineered by Peter Puccio and produced by Scott Foley. Listen and subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at WCSU Media and on the university's Facebook and Twitter pages. And feel free to reach out to us by email at podcasts at wcsu.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>